Welcome to the Tea with Brie. I'm your host, Brie. Thanks for listening. The Tea with Brie podcast is focused on deep, honest, vulnerable conversation. Each week, I sit down with a different guest in order to have those conversations. Every week, we'll start with my guest's bio, an intro to how we know each other, and then we'll go into a deep dive conversation about whatever topic they brought to me that week. This week, I'm joined by my guest, Diana Driver. Diana, who uses she, her, and they, them pronouns, was born in Charleston, South Carolina, and grew up in Corsicana, Texas. Diana attended Texas Women's University in Denton, Texas. Then Diana graduated with a Master's of Public Health from UT Health in Austin, Texas. Diana has lived in Austin since September 2014 and now works for the state of Texas, supervising a federal nutrition assistance program. Hello, my friend. <laughs> I feel like- you know, I almost Googled like how to do bio because I was like, what do I say? You just speak about yourself in third person and have someone else read it. That's all. You talk about all your fancy accolades. That's all. It's like the one yeah, chance you to like, boast about yourself. So here we are. All right. You did great. It sounded there great. It <laughs> I am very excited. We finally got to record via Zoom um, because of quarantine. Um, you and I have been friends for three three years now because we met at fc uh, yeah oh my god four four I mean, three or four 2017 yeah so three happy anniversary <laughs> happy anniversary happy anniversary happy anniversary i feel like um, and then now we've been friends ever since and you're you are my go-to like photographer like all of the photo oh, fancy yeah. photo shoots i do is because of you and me must be like let's just go shoot today so it's been very beautiful. Okay, yeah, that's just... the part. That's the part of the podcast you did with Kara that made me cry. Because you were you talked about our last shoot, and I can't remember which family member. Oh, my grandma. Your grandma <laughs> was like, you know, why did you do that? And you were like, I did it for myself, and that's when I started crying because that's why I do it. Yeah, just the it's free for, uh, nature it's for you. The free yeah. nature of just sitting naked in front of a friend. <laughs> Yeah. I'm just being like, this is my body. Here we that are. Would, that would be the vision. That's my vision of the world. Just like laying around naked with your friends in the grass. And, well, maybe not grass because it's itchy, but, you know. With the plants on oh. your body. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, yeah, let's get into this topic you picked today. What, do you want to tell us what it is? We can start the dive. I know. And, you know, I wrote it down because I feel like it's so complicated, but essentially the topic is using your power to do good in the world. And what I originally wrote was for the good of all people. But this morning after thinking about like, not all people, um, because some people already have power. So it's using your power to support and advocate for 
people that are historically institutionally disadvantaged. Mm. So that's the topic. Yeah. And I'd love, I'd start. No, I love this topic. Um, just to, you know, give some background or some refresher, like I was a social work major and worked in nonprofit work from 2012 until, I guess technically till now, because I just switched teams to our nonprofit side of things. Um, so I'm overseeing fundraising there now because obviously it's me. Um, but I think about that too, like the taking the privilege of like the education I was able to have and using that to help you know, marginalized groups and those who are disadvantaged, disadvantaged that way. Um, um, my friend Carly and I recorded yesterday and we talked about um, like complex PTSD and using privilege for good. And like, what does that look like? And, you know, being a queer black woman living in Texas, like really thinking about what privileges I have in, in this place, um, you know, especially living here in Austin, which is pretty liberal and pretty progressive, um, so thinking about that too, and then, you know, you and I met at work, working at a nonprofit org that works with like affordable housing and on-site social services. Um, so thinking about that too, like the work we were able to do while working there, of like helping the residents and people who used our services. So I think this is a great topic to discuss, um, especially with like you being a white person um, living in the United States and me being a black woman <laughs> living in the United States. Um, our privileges are very different. Um, our experiences are really different. And so, yeah, I, I'm, I'm excited to see where this conversation goes. Um, what in particular made you pick this topic? Um, well, I think it is my passion. I feel like it is my purpose. And I think it is my purpose because it's been really at the core of my intellectual and emotional evolution as a human being. Um, and it really started with one moment where, you know, at the time I felt pretty powerful. And in that one moment, all my power is taken. And that feeling of, feel uh, that feeling of inferiority or I don't even know what's word, being inferior, mm -hmm. um, you know, shook me. And so it was only a moment. And yes, I, I am white. And so I don't have to feel that every day. But I felt it once and other times, but that one. And I, I don't know, just in that moment, I was like, I can't let other people feel this way. Mm. Like how awful. And it doesn't have to be that way. And so just since that moment, I questioned everything. And I was, you know, being raised in a Western Christian sexist um, world. And I, in that moment, I was like, that's bullshit. Fuck it. And it doesn't have to be that way. And so I'm going to use my power because I knew I had it because I knew what it felt like to not have it. Right. Um, so felt a lot of anger and for a long time I was really angry and so as I was challenging ideas that came across my path as I was growing up I did show a lot of anger towards it but then learned it hurt me and also people didn't want to listen to me so um yeah so I feel like I could ramble on forever but that particular moment was also in a very privileged situation um it was a church camp and I was 10 
and I was at a pool and I already had a one piece because I knew that was the rule. Um, and we go to the pool and all the girls had t-shirts on and I was told you have to put a t-shirt on and I said no and it was a woman uh she was like no you girls have to wear t-shirts to get in the pool and I was like but I have a one piece on like I did I mean I had no idea how to talk to an adult at 10 but I was like it doesn't make any sense and I knew what sex was I knew that boys and girls were different um anatomically um but I remember making this connection of like, oh, I'm fucking 10. He's 10. We literally have the same exact body, but I know where you're getting at. And I was like, well, I'm not going to do it. And she's like, well, then you don't get to swim today. So I just like sat there just feeling terrible. But then it turned to anger. I remember one moment watching a boy jump off the diving board. And I was like, I hope he doesn't come back up. And because I know I could save him, but I'm not going to. And mm -hmm. see, that was a terrible feeling too, because I was like, ah, oh, this is awful. And making people feel that way then creates an awful world. So that's really why I chose the topic is because it is my core and I like to talk about it. And yeah. I think it's my duty to do whatever I can to prevent that from happening to another little child. Yeah, that, that makes me think of so much. Um, uh, yesterday, Carly, who is a white therapist, we were talking about um, how right now going through quarantine and social distancing and COVID, and I then saw a stat this morning that 30% of COVID patients or people who contract it are African-American or Black. So 30% of all cases have been Black people, but then but only 13% of black people make up the United States. So it's affecting a lot of us, right? Mm -hmm. And so I was talking to her about how during this time and like now that Texas just opened back up slowly and like restaurants and the mall and like these bigger places are trying to open back up. We know that like a lot of these essential workers who would have been paid unemployment or what have you now aren't because now they're being told to go back to work. Um, but a lot of essential workers are people of color who don't have health insurance, who are low income, who need to who need to work, but now could legitimately die because of, they might contract COVID. Um, but we were talking about how it's interesting how like people who are l white people and people in, in power and in privilege are really learning to be empathetic because now they've had to... Um, rely on like the the stimulus check they were given from the IRS um, because they weren't able to work and so like that whole mentality of like in America it's like you have to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and there's no handouts and blah 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 and it's like no but if that's the only option you have to survive which a lot of people of color people of lower income have it just was you know giving that sympathy and experience and I think now that a lot of people have gone through that I'm hoping it will change the way that people look at people who are on assistance or need help and, you know, start opening these conversations of like, we actually need universal health care and we shouldn't have these people who are out here now who can't afford to pay bills or keep their housing because now they have to continue to pay up student loan debt. Like that whole conversation of like all the things that like the quote unquote liberals are looking to get handouts for. It's like, no, we're just trying to make it so people don't have to struggle as much because there are people who are very wealthy and very privileged get to just kind of live comfortably in the rest of us like that that position of power like 
keeping those who have less in that space. So that you bring it, the topic really triggered that for me, but then also like being a woman or assigned female at birth, you are often told you, your whole life, you are tone and body policed, right? Like you and I were just talking off air about, you know, my 30th birthday shoot that you shot and how my grandmother, which I mentioned before on the show, like she was very much like, well, why did you do this shoot? And you know, why, why did you have to do like, I don't think she was trying to body police me. I think it was more like, that's what she grew up knowing. And so like to see a woman, I've talked about this before, like black women are very overly sexualized. Like we're never for long, maybe even still now have never been seen as like people. Like it's always been like, it's still like that trope of, you know, the experiences we had during slavery, like we're just property and things to look at. Um, so like, that's kind of like why I wanted to do this shoot, just like reclaiming my body and not being body police. But then also if we talk about tone policing, my friend um, Alicia does a lot of work in politics and, you know, Alicia's from the East Coast. So her and I connect a lot about that, about like just being very brash and outspoken. But, you know, if you listen to people always say like women who are running for office, uh, like when Hillary ran and even now with Lauren, with Warren after her um, campaign of like the tone policing around now, like she's too brash. She's not friendly. She's not personable. It's like you would never say that about a male or assigned male at birth candidate. Like you would, he'd be, he's powerful. He has leadership potential. It's like always, you know, the, the person who is not a man is the, the lesser in this situation. So it's like we nitpick all the time and it's then learned behaviors. Like the woman telling you, you couldn't go in the pool when you were 10. It's cause that's what she grew up hearing and learning. So like she internalized that. And therefore she's now re- repeating this, mm-hmm. this cycle. Cause now like, that's what she was told she has to do. And so now she has to pass it on to you. Um, so I, that, that doesn't really trigger that in me. Like we, as women and females, I net birth folks, like we, sometimes do that too like I know I have sadly said it to Alicia before I was like listen you know you're like really brash and like people aren't going to hear you and it wasn't me trying to tone police her but just knowing how people are going to receive her being very I mean outspoken just like saying things that need to be said because if it was said from any from a guy it would have been fine but I know because she was born in a female body they're going to try to continue to police her and you know with me now working a predominantly white organization and having to have reported to white bosses in the past like I know that like I've been told like you are too brash you are too loud you are too whatever and I'm like no I'm just not a white skinny thin person and I'm just and what I say makes you uncomfortable because I'm typically not in a position of power but I'm not going to say it any less to keep you comfortable or in a position of power when we know if it was someone else who was saying it you would totally go with what they were saying so this topic is going to get me very fired up because I, I know <laughs> so I many things, so many things around tone policing and like, you know, now that I'm thinking about like moving back to the East coast and like, just being, I think my issue here is like, I have tone policed myself in Texas. Like I have lost, I have stopped, I stopped using my accent like after like six months of being here. So like, if you don't know me, you don't really know I'm from Connecticut. So I don't sound like it anymore. Um, not that I made myself smaller, but I was very strategic about things I said just because I live in Texas and I'm always on the lookout yeah. because people. Um, so like now, like 
you know that I've decided to move back home, I am excited to just be comfortable again. And a friend of mine yesterday asked like, why, what's like really triggering you to move back? And I was like, well, where I'm connected, the Northeast is very diverse. Um, Philadelphia is a very progressive city. Um, it's very queer. I'm like, and also like just being back in a place where I don't stick out like a sore thumb. And, you know, when I moved here, there was a 2016 election and no one expected Trump to win. Um, but now like thinking the fact that he can get four more years, I'm like, I have to get out of Texas because I just do not know what that's going to look like, you know, if he gets reelected, reelected. And right now with, you know, Governor Abbott and him reopening Texas and, you know, the ways that like a lot of people around the country are responding to, you know, social distancing and stay stay at home orders and shelter in place orders, like seeing all of these white men and all this gear with guns at capitals, at capital buildings and it being, you know, they're just so passionate about what they have to say. But we all know like if it was black, Asian, Mexican, Indian, you know, all these people of color with these guns at these state buildings, the cops would be called in a heartbeat people would be killed and arrested like they we as people of color aren't allotted the same privilege as white people um so like that is also a really big reason like why I'm also moving back home is like just to again like be able to breathe again like I feel like being in Texas while it has been you know I've been in Austin which has been great and I've been able to do a lot of things I feel like I've been holding my breath for four years and like now I can just like be like comfortable again which I you know, sitting here and thinking about that, you know, right before I got on the call with you, it was like, I'm just excited to, like, I spent a lot of time yesterday crying, like, just feeling very relieved to, like, have made this decision and be able to, like, get back close to family and everything else. So, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, hearing that is just so heartbreaking because that is not how the world needs to be. And, but I guess, I mean, technically, a system of oppression has to function that way, right? You have to make people feel that way so that you can remain powerful and get all the resources. Um, but it doesn't have to be that way. Why can't we all have the resources? Something I've been saying a lot lately, I don't, it's not a fully fleshed out idea, but I'm like, God damn it, we've flown to the moon, but we can't like take care of our people and like devise a new system that, you know, is going to be very complicated, but also maybe less so. Um, that's really sad to hear that, you know, you feel that way. And, and there's a part of me that, you know, I wish, I wish I could protect you from that. Um, and I'm like, damn it, I'm failing, you know, but I'm working towards (laughs) whatever, whatever that is. And in my life, I try to, as a white person, protect to some extent, um, my friends, and then the ones that could be my friends, I guess, is really why I do the work that I do. I met you at the nonprofit with affordable housing, which I love that job. I manage food pantries. Um, So I got to give people food for free, which is really cool. Um, And and good food. Because I I think, gosh, maybe 90% of the food we gave was fresh produce from the food bank in town and uh that was a wonderful feeling um that's probably how it should be but that's a radical idea um but that the fact that that's such a radical idea that we should all have access to fresh yeah quality food is yeah is seen as outrageous the same with healthcare, right like yeah 
or like safe housing, affordable housing, like making mm-hmm. sure that, you know, we are all safe and able to, you know, live our best life possible. But I think also like the thing is like, the more I talk to white people and like them wanting to help, I'm like, it's also like, we have to carefully tread that line between like wanting to help and the white savior complex, right? Like we oh, can't, yeah. as you know, white people in this position of power, we as people of color love allies, but also whenever there's a chance to like, to center black people and people of color to do that, right? Like, and I, I talked about this a lot as, at my last job because we would have youth who I worked at a queer organization and we would always like want to have youth who would come in and like talk about the work that we've done and like with me working in fundraising like yes a personal story is always going to like get us the best quote-unquote result but also I was very adamant on not just toting the kids in to have a story right um so talking to a lot of the youth I'd be like this is what we need from you but I don't want you to feel like you have you don't owe us anything like right like our job is to give you these resources and help you the best that we can and listening to what you need. Like a lot of it was centered around the youth and what they wanted and what they wanted to see. Um, So with me, we would always, you know, every year at our gala um, have a youth and uh, one of their family members or a teacher or an adult that they trusted come and speak. And so my first year there, we had a black youth and then this past year we had um, I think they were Latinx. I want to say Latinx youth. Um, and the thing was, you know, those last years we had youth of color and it's because I really wanted to center the story of a youth of color because I think a lot of queer people of color are left out of those conversations. Like being queer is very, is seen as very white. Um, and we, in that organization, did primarily serve white youth because it was here in Austin, and Austin is now predominantly white. So, you know, between that and then also, like, making sure that our boards look diverse and our staffs look diverse. And, then, you know, as as a per, as a queer Black woman, like, I am really adamant of, like, there there isn't just me, which is also another reason why I'm thinking, well, why I'm moving is, like, I feel like I've been taking up a lot of space in Austin. And so I want to make sure as I start, you know, leaving and transitioning out of, you know, the many roles I play in the city and with organizations here in the city, that there are other people who now feel invited, who now know that they have as much space as I did to be in those places. Um, And that, you know, I hope that like me being there was the representation that they needed, which is why representation is so important, um, so that they know that they have every right to be in those spaces and on those stages that I was. because I mean, if, if there was room for me, there was room for someone else. And so now I'm really trying to make sure that not only am I creating that room, but that these people who invited me in know that these other people exist too. So all that to be said is like, as we continue as people to try to help those who are less advantaged or less privileged as us, um, to listen to those stories, to give them the stage and platform and space when we can, um, cause we, as the people who do this work, don't have to always be the ones in, uh, in the, in the limelight center stage. Um, I would much rather someone else who, you know, has a better story or more compelling story, have that space over me. Um, but I think we, you know, as a black person, I need allies who are white to also know that yes, while we ap- appreciate the work that you're doing, you can also help to 
give us some space that you have. Yeah, exactly. And I think having the position of power, you can work in multifaceted ways and it doesn't have to be, like I said earlier, like protecting you. That doesn't have to be part of it. That is a part of it. Um, But then um, just using it in whatever way you can. And so I personally working for the state of Texas and a nutrition assistance program, just there even small things like had, um, oh gosh, I'm going to blank out. Let me see. I look on my email. Just taking time to give attention to, because being a program supervisor, a federal grant program, you you do have a lot of power to involve people and people always coming to you. Like, how can we get your money to do good things? So um, that's how I've been using it lately. Oh, the food trust. So food trust emailed said that they wanted to just talk 15 to 20 minutes. They're essentially working on a project um, to essentially collect and then report on best practices for this particular program on how to apply for and then implement this federal program for historically black universities and colleges. Um, so I could have easily not taken the time to, you know, to respond to them. I vetted it with leadership because that's what I have to do. Um, but advocating in that space, because I have the opportunity to help their project, which then could ultimately turn into historically black universities and colleges applying to my program. And so that's just one example. And I feel like I'm just, you know, going on that tangent, but um, yeah, there's a lot of different ways to do it. And it always has to come from a place of being genuine because I think um, disadvantaged, whether it's black people or women, they, they can see that a mile away and they're actually more sensitive to it. So it has to come from a place of being genuine and not from a place of selfishness, that's for sure. Um, I, and I'm kind of going all over the place here, but one like visual representation that always sticks in my head of like what, how I hope to use my position is, it was by I think a Scandinavian artist, but on Instagram, it was for um, I think Women's Day and it was, it's a pair of like white hands. You just see the hands um, just lifting. And it's obviously too, I mean, well, I shouldn't say obviously. The hands are painted, the fingernails, and then the foot is a heel, but it's a black foot. And so it's essentially showing, I'm just, like you know helping you over that lifting fence you or up. like yeah. yeah lifting you up to whatever you're about to do because it's this is your turn this is your this is what you've got to do and I'm here to get you there um not that you need me but let me help you let me let me lift up your foot and get you there so yeah I just thought of that while you were talking and yeah about the different things related well, I guess to like the thing too like every year I can't remember what day it is, but it's the thing when we, when they ever, they post about like the wage gap and how like women make less than men. But then it's also like, it, that breaks down by race too. Like white women still make more than black women and black women still make more than Latinx women, right? Like it's, it's like the more marginalized you are, the less privilege you have. 
And so I think we also need to think about that too, of like, I can't remember what actress it is right now, but there is a white actress who noticed that she was making less than Octavia Spencer. And so she said she like wouldn't do this movie until they paid them the same amount, right? So like, it's that too of like you seeing what privilege you have and making things at least fair, right? Like if we're doing the same amount of work and we are at the same level of caliber, there is no reason why one of us should be making more than the other, um, period. And that goes for men, women, race, like, gender, race, everything. Like if we are, you know, at least semi on the same quote unquote level, there's no reason why someone should have a higher, a higher pay or a higher, um, what have you than the other person. So then we also have to continue to think about that. Yep. And we have built a system that thrives on that, but it's why does, I mean, even the concept of the 1%, why do you, that small number of people have that much fucking money. Mm-hmm. Like it, it's, it's not logical. It's not, and it's not a really great way to live. Right. Um, yeah. You know, that would probably be a whole podcast on just like, how does it even get to that point? Right. Well, that was my thing too. Like at this new job that I'm at, I've been here since January. Oh my God, it's May. Um, and I am, I love talking about money because it makes people uncomfortable, which is also why I have this show, right? Like I love when things are awkward and we can grow through the uncomfortableness. So, you know, when I started talking to people who I work with, one of the questions was like, Hey, I know I just got here, but how much do you make? And everyone's like, what? And I was like, we work at a tech company in Texas. It's a startup, but like, how much do you make? And you know, the kids, kids, the people who were younger than me <laughs> uh, told me, um, you know, there was this one white woman who I think is the same age as me, or at least like we're maybe like a year apart. But I also asked her and she was like, I don't feel comfortable telling you that. And I was like, oh, why? And she's like, you know, I've come from a, a I've had a couple of different jobs where we have talked about money and it has like caused a bunch of things and, you know, a lot of shit has hit the fan. Fan. I was like, well, why do you think that is? And like, she couldn't answer that. And she's a white woman. I was like, I just want you to understand that like in a lot of, you know, with me, I've always asked for money. I've always asked for raises. I don't, uh, I did a, um, a panel at you know, University of Texas. That's a lie. Texas State a couple months ago. Um, and I've mentioned this before on the show, like one of the white boys in the audience, like you said, you asked your boss for a raise after a year. My mom worked at this job for 20 years and she didn't get a raise or a promotion for 20 years. And I was like, I'm assuming your mom is white. And he's like, yeah. I was like, well, let's put that into effect. Your mom is white. These are way different times back then. And I was like, you know, and you say paying your dues, but as a black person, my dues will never come. Like no one's ever going to think that a black person has done enough to just quote unquote deserve a raise. And that's all marginalized groups. Like your mom's a woman. I am a black queer woman. Like, you know, the, again, the more you are marginalized, the more, you know, you have to kind of fight for why you deserve the things that you deserve. So I was like, with me, my privilege in that job that I was at the time when I asked that raise and that title change was for me to be like, I know the work I've done and I know I could leave and find another job if I don't like it, which is what I did. Like, I didn't think I was getting paid fairly. I knew I deserved more money. And, you know, 
I've had people who've asked me since leaving that job, like, what made you think you deserved that? You deserved it. I was like, because I busted my ass that year. Like, I did so much stuff at that last job. Like, by the time I left, we more than doubled our budget. And I don't think that's a mistake. So clearly, I was, yeah, I was really good at what I was doing. So like, I knew, and I knew, I knew what I was doing was good when the community noticed before my boss did, right? Like, I had people who I was, I was actually working and interacting with who were like, you're doing great work, you're doing great work. And like, I never really hearing my boss say that till like right before I left, right? And so with me, a lot of privileges in, in my job was that like, listen, sometimes I know that I am tokenized because I am a black educated woman who is like, I have an Afro, <laughs> I am very curvy. Like I am, you see me, you can see me a mile away. Like I, I know that. Um, so I, I felt like, you know, there are times when I might be tokenized and just used as, you know, the black woman who can bring in money and is really good at fundraising. Like I'm very personal. People like to talk to me. I can, you know, talk to issues. Um, and I'm very educated. Like I, I have a lot of privilege in that. So like with me, I use it as an advantage of being like, listen, everybody else who is really privileged uses it for them. Why can't I use it for me? Right. So I think as we continue as people and, you know, especially with, you know, this political year coming up, make sure you register to vote and also look into vote by mail efforts in your state because a lot of states are allowing vote by mail during COVID. Texas, a little wishy-washy, we're working on it. Um, but, you know, I think people need to know that we have the right to ask our employers questions. We have the right to ask, you know, for clear and concise goals that will, you know, help you reach where you want to be financially or professionally. Um, and I mean, with me and that person I worked with, like I am the kind of person who will like help pick up other projects. And so like, I also tell that to people too. Like if you are doing things outside of your job description, don't let your company try to fuck with you. <laughs> like that whole, like another task as a sign trope doesn't work for me. I'm like, no, yeah. what we talked about is this. I clearly went outside of this and got the, like, I'm very good about numbers and like keeping track of shit. Um, so like, as I have worked for other companies, like, well, you did this and this, and we didn't ask for this. I'm like, you didn't ask for this, but you got it. And so what are we going to do now? Cause like, we can't go back and take it back. Right. So we need to then add that in to a review. Right. So, cause I think a lot of places will hire people of color and especially like if you work in nonprofits, like a lot of nonprofits, the higher ups are typically people of color. I mean, sorry, white people and then hire people of color for like the, you know, client support or day to day sort of work. And it's these systems in place that kind of keep white people in power. But I'm going to get a lot of backlash for this, but I typically do not trust organizations that don't have people of people of color in positions of power or executive suite levels. Yeah. Because I'm like, you as a white person, granted, not knowing your backstory, but if you are a white person working in an org that serves predominantly people of color, why are you here? Yeah. <laughs> are you here for the paycheck, for the easy job, for the white saviorism of it all? Like, I have questions. And I've asked these questions to people, which might be the reason why I don't get a lot of these jobs. But I would rather work for a place where I am encouraged to make people uncomfortable and try to enact change than to be a peg in the cog and just keep my head down and be a part of the problem and not the solution. That was a tangent. <laughs> no, it's not. It's all related and we will probably go back and forth. And, but that is what this topic is about, is Brianna 
has persevered and she does have power and she's using it. And she's using it in ways of talking to her employer, which is then going to make that employer think a little differently when another black woman comes in. Um, whether that employer does anything, but they're going to be thinking a little differently. You made them pause. And to me, that's important. And that is part of as small or big as anyone wants to label that action. To me, that is rebellion against the system of oppression. And it's 2020, big, big clit energy, you know, like you talk to your employer about your salary, you ask your coworkers, and if they're not willing to share, well, can't force it, but then you can just be like, all right, I see the type of person you are. And, you know, or I maybe I shouldn't be so judgy. But... Person. No, no, okay. you can't be judgy. Yeah, 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 listen, I, know. I have feelings I'll talk to you offline about. But, yeah, I mean, yeah, I don't know. I just, I just, the thing that I think gets me the most right now in 2020 is the fact that we had the most diverse Democratic nominee pool and we still ended up with two white men as the final options. I mean, we knew it was probably going to happen. We knew that America was not, back this up, I knew that America was not ready for another president of color, like jumping from Trump back all the way back to like, to backtrack to like an Obama era sort of shit. And yes, Barack was not perfect, but it was better than what we have now and fight me. Um, but like, Right now, like, the last two options were Joe and Bernie. I w- they were, neither of them were my nominee. I'll just leave it at that. Um, but just thinking about right now, like, now we have Trump and Biden. And looking right now to see who Biden will pick as his running mate is really fascinating to me because I'm just like, Joe, you got some options here. Because <laughs> Joe Biden has been a part of a lot of problems and has had a lot of shit in his career and you know never forget Anita Hill forever and her trial and the trial that she was on and Joe Biden's comments to her we'll never forgive him for that um but you know I know that Stacey Abrams from Georgia has been like saying she'd be a good running mate to like bring on but I also, you know, with her saying that, I was like, I also don't want her to be tokenized by Joe because also what? an issue. Yeah. Because as much as I would love to have her, I mean, I also was saying, you know, when Warren was still in that I would have loved a Warren Castro ticket. Like, I think Julian Castro would have been a great VP too. And I still do, like, if that's who ends up getting picked as well. But, you know, someone was saying that Joe Biden needs to pick a person of color or a queer person to be his running mate and I don't think that they're wrong like Joe is a white man with a really bad rap sheet (laughs) and you know I think we also need to talk about that a little bit too like that that privilege of like being people being a person who has had so much shit that has happened and you still get the democratic nomination right like I think it's related (laughs) to something that is underlining you know growing up and a white family. Now my dad's mom's family is from Mexico, but we are predominantly white. And something that I started learning was just how blinding privilege can be. And I think it's kind of interwoven in all the things you've talked about is even that person that um, at your speech at um, Texas State saying, well, my mom, well, yeah, 
And you know what? We all go through pain. We all work hard, blah, blah, blah. But there are certain experiences for certain people and you have to believe them. And that's something I learned. Probably the takeaway from feminist studies in college was you have to believe when Brianna's talking and telling me a story, I believe her a hundred percent. And I don't think about, you know, you just have to accept fully because out of respect, compassion, and um, wanting to make change. So listening to Brianna and accepting it as truth can then also propel us to change the world. What if I didn't believe you? And what if I was the person that was, well, it's hard for me too, so get over it. No, because we would get nowhere. And you know, I think ultimately how blinding privilege is, is also another, another topic is that people have baby souls. And that's a concept I got from the Native American Nutrition Conference I went to um, back last September. I'm probably gonna go again was this concept of people with infant souls and a tribe used that as a concept for understanding why people do terrible things to other people. Um, and also that conference had a lot of discussions on white supremacy, which was really awesome because that's not typical of the area I work in being working for the state and all of that. But, um, but people, and you know, that kind of touches back even on the um, conversation you had about um, tone policing and, you know, even with your friend, Alicia, about tone policing her, what you were encouraging was well-founded and that I couldn't help but feel and sometimes there is no way to change another person and privilege is very blinding because um, you think you earned it, right? Because what if everything was just given to me? I admitted that. That would take away me, you know, my autonomy and maybe make me seem weak, right? And so I think people paint a picture through their privilege um, that, you know, I worked hard for this. And you did, but it was also given to you, you know? But um, yeah, now I'm going in circles. No, I, I, I like that idea of like infant souls and baby souls. And like, I think about that as like people who are in like these spaces of like calling out white supremacy and privilege and all that shit. Like it's like, you, it's a lot of learning, right? And so we have to, you know, the person at work I was talking about, like the girl who didn't want to tell me how much she got paid, I had to like take a step back and make, she as a white woman has never probably had to question her privilege. Um, and I was like, you know what, I'm going to take a step back and just, and that was like my infant baby soul moment for her. I was like, it is not my job to let, to ask, to have, to demand for her to tell me this, right? Like I am in a different place of, you know, learning this about privilege and maybe she's on the same place as me. Maybe, you know, she's never been asked this question or like she said last time she was so naturally tentative about it. So I love that idea of like, we are all in this constant state of learning and just because someone isn't where you are yet doesn't mean that they're wrong or trying to like not help you out it's just like maybe it's not a safe space for them yet and i think we have to like give grace um mm -hmm. you know we have to be patient and understanding and not tokenizing and giving space and asking the appropriate questions and going from there but I think that is a great place to wrap. 
Um, I will be sure to link all the things we talked about in the show notes as well as your social media handle, predominantly Instagram, let's be serious. Um, And as you know, every show I like to finish the wrap um, and ask the question, what is the best advice you were ever given or what's a piece of advice you would give to your younger self? So I went with the prior, the, um, the best advice I've gotten. Actually, there are two things, but I'm going to go with the first one that I received because the second one is what I received recently. But I had a friend in college, Megan Berthold, which I told her I was going to say this earlier. And then we hadn't talked in forever. Anyways, she told me in the context of dating people who hurt you, she said, don't ever let a man do something you don't want to do. Um, and that was in the context of dating, but I find myself playing that back in a lot of uh, instances in my life. And I think that's also part of the topic is getting to a, a place where you feel empowered um, to say, no, fuck that. I, I don't want to do that. And isn't that so simple? Don't do what you don't want to, right? Why do we do, why do, we do things we don't want to? But that is the best advice I've gotten. I love that. That's it for this week's episode of The Tea with Bree. Um, be sure to follow us on Instagram at The Tea with Bree. Send me an email at the tea with Bree at gmail.com and visit the website, the tea with Bree podcast.com. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast. A special thanks to Mama Duke for our theme music, and I will talk to y'all next week. Bye.